So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's 58 verses. And we won't cover every single part in detail, but I do want to give us an overview tonight. This is a very important chapter in the Bible. Uh, it deals with a big topic. The topic is life after death. The topic is resurrection. The topic is very, very, very tied into our notion of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't really separate the two. Uh, and verse 12 answers an important question for us. The question is, what was the problem that Paul was addressing in this chapter? We kind of know what the problem was uh, at the beginning of the letter. We kind of know what some of the problems were in the middle of the letter. But now he launches into this section not about sexual immorality, not about marriage, not about the body, not about hair, not about any of those things, but he's launching into this section about doctrine, and it's a doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12 answers the question, what's this all about? What issue is Paul addressing? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul is deeply disturbed, disturbed enough to include this in his letter, that there are some in Corinth, some that are part of the church in Corinth, that were denying the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul takes time before he concludes this letter to address this very important topic. You might ask yourself, why does it matter? Why is it important that we get it right? And I want to talk about a little bit of that. Again, I won't be able to cover every single detail of all 58 of these verses, but I want to talk about for a little while, if we, if we can, why this doctrine is essential, uh, what the timing of the resurrection, what it's gonna, what's going to actually take place, and the nature and the implications of the resurrection. When we talk about these things, there's a word that, really came to my attention this afternoon, and it's the word worldview. What you believe about this doctrine, what you believe about the gospel, did Jesus Christ really resurrect from the dead? What you believe about that shapes how you look at the world. And so, because of that, there's tremendous ramifications for understanding what this doctrine is all about and what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it's likely that there will be some loose ends tonight, but hopefully there's no crossed wires if that's okay. What I want to do is I want to connect this topic tonight, maybe to the person who hasn't really thought a whole lot about it. Uh, maybe uh, it's a little new, but I don't think we're going to plumb the deepest depths uh, of what the Bible has to say about this. So you've probably read this chapter uh, at least once. Maybe you've read it recently. Are there any questions, anything that stands out in 1 Corinthians 15 before I launch out? I just want to open it up. Are there any questions about this chapter? If you've got your Bible open, you might be scanning it. It's a long chapter. Okay, here's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I've got them printed out, and I'm going to read them. 
Here's what it says. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James and then all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul launches out in this, in this discussion. The first thing he does is he makes some affirmations. What's some of the things that Paul says in those first 11 verses, if you've got it open, you're looking at it at all, that he says that we absolutely need to believe? That he died for us. Right, that he died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he was seen by eyewitnesses. These are absolutely fundamental facts. If we lose even just one of those facts, we are no longer dealing with Christianity, we're dealing with something else. We have a different belief system that will become apparent as Paul makes his argument in this chapter. These are absolute bedrock fundamental things that we can never, ever, ever compromise on. Our faith depends on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The logic that Paul's making is very simple. If Christ was raised from the dead, then it follows that there must be a resurrection from the dead for others. Jesus was raised from the dead, and so there's going to be a general resurrection of the dead. And since death is the punishment for sin... We need the resurrection of the dead to have final victory over sin. That's why when we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we say that he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And that's important, not just because we want to shout about how he did it, but because we need the victory over death, hell, and the grave. Because we're sinners, and because we live under the curse of sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we can't ever give up the doctrine that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And I know that's fundamental tonight, and I know that you're thinking maybe right now, are we gonna, is this what we're going to talk about tonight? I, I, I know that maybe there's no one here tonight that I need to take time and persuade you that Jesus did rise from the dead. I think we might be at 100% tonight. So I'm not under any false illusion that I need to do any serious, heavy-duty persuading on that fact tonight. But we absolutely cannot give up the doctrine of the resurrection. So let me ask a question. Who will be resurrected from the dead? And the answer is everybody. Everybody. 
will be resurrected from the dead. Let me, let me read from 1 Corinthians, and then we'll go back to that question. Let's pick up at verse 12. If you've got your Bible open, I'm reading in the New King James Version. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile or in vain. You are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable, miserable. So, we quote that last verse a lot of times, but Paul's making an argument in the whole paragraph here, and he's saying that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we have no hope of being raised from the dead. And if we preach that there is no resurrection from the dead, then we can't reasonably preach that Jesus raised from the dead. And so these things are tied together. And so I asked the question a moment ago, who will be resurrected? And the answer, according to the book of Acts, is everybody. Acts chapter 24, verse 15 Paul is before Felix, and he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Everybody will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody will. Now, believers are going to be resurrected to glorification. Non-believers are going to be resurrected to destruction, condemnation. Job chapter 19, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job is probably one of the oldest Old Testament books. It's probably one of the Old Testament books that was written first, chronologically. And all the way back then, Job had a clear understanding and a hope of a bodily resurrection from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 24, Martha said to Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Acts chapter 17, verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul. Paul was in Athens. He was preaching to the philosophers. Certain of them came to him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? And other, says, other people said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And they started to mock him because Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection. It was a doctrine that they couldn't accept. They couldn't accept the resurrection of the dead. They couldn't accept that Jesus and that we by extension, would experience a bodily resurrection. They couldn't, they couldn't reconcile what Paul was preaching. They, they found it unacceptable. It was unpalatable to them. And so they mocked it and dismissed it. Paul responded to them later in that same chapter, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. He said, truly, these times of, of ignorance God overlooked at, overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man 
whom he has ordained. He has given this assurance. He's given us assurance of all of this by raising him from the dead. So Paul makes the point, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but when God judges the world, he has ordained Jesus to do so. Jesus is going to be the judge because he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is the physical proof that there is judgment coming. That the world isn't going to go on like it's always gone on. Because there was a man who came out of the grave. And because he came out of the grave, God is doing a new thing. And there's judgment coming. Paul went on to write to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead spirit who dwells in you. So there's a lot of places in the Old Testament, there's a lot of places in the New Testament where the word of God talks about this important doctrine that we don't hear a lot about. We don't talk a lot about the resurrection, especially compared to how important and how central it is to our faith. But it's all over the place in the Word of God. Let me ask a question, and then maybe I'll answer it. Uh, who in history, or even today, oppose the doctrine of the resurrection? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, sad, you see. If you didn't believe in the resurrection, you'd be sad too. There's some mindsets that we have to watch out for that will, sometimes they openly oppose this doctrine, and sometimes they just do that slow erosion of this doctrine. They chip away at it to where eventually you don't have anything left. Let me tell you what a couple of them are. One of the mindsets that you have to watch out for is that, is that in the first, uh, I want to say the second and third century, there was this belief system called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was, uh, this is a major oversimplification, but they believed basically that all physical matter is evil, that all good things are immaterial, and that all physical things that actually exist in space and time are, uh, are evil. Now, you may think, ah, you know, why, why does that even matter to us? Because there's those who believe that, uh, that basically our physical bodies are irredeemable, and that's simply not what the Bible teaches. The, body, the Bible teaches a physical bodily resurrection. And we have to be on guard against those little ways of thinking that steer us away from what the Bible actually says about a topic. Uh, how many of us have seen heaven uh, depicted as uh, people sitting on clouds, strumming harps? That's, no, that's not Scripture. That's not Scripture. But it's presented sometimes in pop popular culture as the Christian afterlife, and it's not it at all. That's way off base. How many have, how many have heard or seen depictions of uh, when 
somebody who's in Christ uh, passes away and goes on to the next life, that they grow wings and become an angel. Well, I mean, I don't mean to be like I'm not being mean, but human beings don't have wings. And we will, nev- we will not have wings. <laughs> huh? Well, we don't have wings now. And so, I mean, some angels, those, the seraphim and, and ones that uh, in Isaiah, they have wings that they cover themselves with, but they're, they're not like angels in the traditional sense that we think of, like with halos and stuff. They're like, if we seen one of those, I would, I'd be pretty scared. I, I know, I know, you're just picking. <laughs> But there's a lot of ways of thinking about this that has crept in that take away from what God's Word says about it. And when we get away from what God's Word says about this topic in particular, it starts, it, it, it diminishes the message. It diminishes the hope. I don't want to be an angel. I think angels do have wings. I just don't think we will. I just don't think we will. I don't, I don't want to be an angel. I want to be a human being. I want to be among the redeemed. The angels don't know what it's like to be redeemed. And right, right, the dead in Christ are going to rise. That's, that's the resurrection. And right. Right, and that's when the resurrection happens, at the return of Jesus, his second coming, at the last trump, that's what Thessalonians says, that the dead in Christ will rise first, those that are alive and remain will be with him, and that's, that's the doctrine of the resurrection. But there's a lot of ways of thinking that have crept in about, about uh, what we're like in eternity, and we'll get into this, but there's a whole lot of things. Um, there was, and a lot of it has to do with subconsciously, we just don't, we have trouble with that we're going to have physical bodies because we look at our physical bodies and our physical bodies are messed up. Our physical bodies break down. Uh, somehow we've convinced ourselves at times that, that our, anything like the, the, the most powerful, that there's nothing spiritual about our physical bodies, and there is, but we've convinced ourselves that there's not. Uh, so these kind of things and these ways of thinking, they, they aren't biblical. They kind of erode away at the hope that we have, and they make it less than what it can be and less than what the Bible presents to us. And so it's always been a controversial doctrine. The Sadducees were against it. Uh, there was the, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics and the philosophers in Athens laughed at it, um, and there's even been people after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that have a very difficult time accepting it, and it's the thing that keeps them from embracing the faith. So let me ask a question, just to workshop it for a second. If there was a skeptic sitting across from you right now, and their major sticking point 
was, I don't know if I can believe in, I don't know if I can believe Christianity. I don't know if I can be a part of the church because I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe he came out of the grave. Now, we live in the Bible Belt, so if you go out and ask 100 people, you're probably going to get in the high 90s of people that will say, oh, yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe, I believe he came, literally came out of the grave. But many people in the world, an increasing number of people even here, this is going to be the reality that this is going to be the sticking point. They're like, no, I just don't believe, I can't accept any of the rest of it because I don't believe he came out of the grave. So if that person's sitting across the table from you right now, what evidence do you give them? How do you persuade that person? It's tough. Well, you might ask them, do you believe in God? Do you believe there's a God? If they do, then you might get them to concede that if they believe in a God, can't God do anything? Well, if you can get them there, you might have an open door. Then maybe he could bring someone back from the dead. Uh, another question you might ask, uh, there's a lot of people that don't maybe not believe the Bible, but you might ask them, do you believe in the afterlife? Do you believe something happens after we die? And if they believe anything about the afterlife, if they believe like anything short of, no, I think we just die and that's it, then you have an open door to talk about, well, let's talk about what that is. And now it may be a long road to get them there, but you might have an in. You might have somewhere where you can get in. The atheist, that's a whole different, whole different ball of wax. Um, I think that for the atheist, I would have to ask them, what is it about, what is it about Christianity that you find unbelievable? specifically, because this is a well-documented historical event from the ancient world. There's 500 eyewitnesses at one time that saw this man that had been in the grave and come out. There's written documents that we have dozens of ancient copies of, the, the four Gospels, that detail this historical event in a tremendous amount of detail and harmony where there's not any contradictions. And I would, like to, I would like to just, I would probably interact with them there and see what is it about, I mean, if you believe that, uh, what's his name, Homer wrote um, the Iliad, right, and we have like one copy of that from, you know, before 1000 A.D., but we have dozens and hundreds of manuscripts, not the original autographs, but manuscripts of the Gospels. And that doesn't work for you, you know? Like either this is the biggest conspiracy, the biggest hoax that's ever been perpetrated on the human race, and you, you find me 500 people that can all go with the same thing and take it to the grave and make it up. I mean,
Yeah. My dad says it. He says, you know, there's some things that makes a decent enough doctrine to live by, but it's not a very good one to die by. Some have called it Pascal's wager. You know, what if, what if it's true? Well, if it's true and you say it's not, then you just gambled everything away. If it's not true and you run with it, what have you lost? Mm-hmm. There's almost always a story, a background, pain, disappointment. Brother Sanders. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yes, sir. making the moral argument of like where do you you know pick the most heinous terrible crime that you can think of that I don't even want to say out loud and you know you go out on the street and uh, you ask a million people a million people are going to say it's wrong uh but what do the atheists have to ground that that on and it's a real it's a real sticking point for them it's a, and and so maybe the greatest takeaway from this is because there's been several uh, good points made about how to interact with the skeptic or even the full-blown, you know, atheist. Uh, maybe the biggest takeaway for tonight is uh, you don't have to be intimidated. Atheism is not a superior worldview. It's just not. And it's not impenetrable. It's not airtight like they make it out to be. It's, it's v- right. You can poke holes in it. You just have to, you just have to be prepared. And sometimes they out-prepare us a little bit. Um, now, you don't have to go in with brute force. I would say exercise wisdom. Still be gentle and kind and have the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's not about winning an argument. It's about winning the person. But don't not ways in, and there's not ways to have a conversation with somebody. It might be slow. It's probably going to take more than one interaction. You probably have to get a second, make a second appointment, a second coffee with them. It's probably going to take some time. It's going to be an investment. It's probably not going to take just one breakfast. But there's ways in. There's ways in.
Right. Right. Well, I mean, they, I mean, and we're, I'm hitting the rabbit trail right now, but I mean, the atheist will probably, for the most part, tell you that they believe in a scientific theory of a Big Bang and that everything in the universe bursts into existence in a split second. I kind of believe the same thing. I just, I know who pulled the trigger, you know? So, I mean, there's, there's ways to go about, about this. Uh, we're not necessarily that far apart. You know, I mean, like, there's ways in to have a conversation and start interacting. Uh, so, yeah, it's not impenetrable. And, and, and the, the sticking point, let's go back to where we started, is the resurrection. And if you can, if you can validate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. If the resurrection is true, and this is the, this is the argument that Paul's making, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, it changes everything. All bets are off. The whole world is not what we thought it was. Right. There's a lot that do not believe there's a God. No. Yeah, right. There's, there's a growing number. The number is growing very, very quickly. Jake made the point a minute ago. Uh, there's a lot of nonconformity. Nonconformity is in vogue. And, uh, yeah, it's anti-authority. It's nonconformity. And uh, it's popular. It's just kind of trendy to kind of buck the system. And if there's any kind of institutionalized knowledge, a tradition, you might say, of belief, uh, it's trendy to kind of shake that off and say, no, that's not for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my own belief system kind of a la carte. I mean, you come up, you come up, you come up with people that, that believe certain, some things that are Christian, and then they'll believe in, like, reincarnation and stuff. I mean, like, because they're just, they're, they're going down a buffet line of beliefs, and they're just, it's wild times we live in, and we just have to use wisdom. And we need to be versed in some of these topics, especially these ones that are absolutely uh, core and central to our faith, ones that, like the resurrection, that maybe we've taken for granted for a long time because we've never had to defend it like we're going to have to defend it. Not that it doesn't stand on its own, but you know what I mean when I say defend it. So um, I want to kind of hasten on. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. That's the way the scriptures talk about him. Colossians 
uh, chapter 1, uh, says, He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Um, there's another passage in Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, says he's the firstborn among many brethren, speaking of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, when it says that he's the firstborn from among the dead among many brethren, who are the other brethren? It's you and I. It's you and I. Um, Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I don't think he was necessarily talking about Rolexes and Ferraris. I think he was talking about life. There is a dimension of life that comes with being filled with the Spirit of God, but there is a dimension of life that comes in the afterlife where life is going to be, where eternal life is going to be off the charts, and that's abundant life. And so the resurrection is not just the defeat of death. It is the reign of life. It is life being unleashed on the world. It's not just that, we've, that Christ and we have defeated death, but it's that life is now available. This is the middle of the chapter, and I, I won't read all of it. You end up with a completely different belief system. You end up with something that's, that's, not, uh, that's, that's not Christianity at all. And Paul, uh, in verses 29 through 34, there's a section in the middle of the chapter. Um, basically, Paul doesn't miss the opportunity here to tell the saints, to tell us that we need to grow up, <laughs> that we, in essence, can't take the resurrection just as a doctrinal reality of some idea that we agree with. But Paul, in the middle of this chapter, makes sure that he admonishes us and says, listen, this isn't just something you need to believe and agree with intellectually, but it's something that has to manifest itself in your life. I would say it a way uh, that I've heard someone say, you need to practice the resurrection. We're talking about the resurrected life. It has to manifest itself in our life. It can't just be a doctrine, an idea that we agree with. It, it, it takes over our life. It imprints itself on who we are. So let me ask the question. We were having, we're having great discussion. Uh, the question is, what do you think it would mean to live the resurrected life right now, to practice the resurrection? Let's take it out of the realm of like just ideas and doctrine. Let's bring it into life. What does it mean to live the resurrected life? Right. Right. Right, you change, and there's, there's a new life that starts. And there's different, I mean, isn't every part of your life affected? Now, maybe not instantaneously all at once, like a thunderbolt, and everything, you know, it, there might be a growth period. There's some things that will change. For some people, there's things that change immediately. There's things they walk away from immediately, and that's good. There's other things that as we grow in God, that things change about us. Our habits change. Right, we evangelize. Our, our talk changes. Our worldview changes. When your worldview changes, when you believe that there's life after death, when you believe that some of the things that go along with being a child of God, the way you live your life changes. 
The things you focus on change. Now, some, I'll, I'll, I want to pause and say what I expound on what I was saying a second ago. There's things that take time. There's things that do take time to change. Our habits change. We have to reorganize our life in some ways. Our relationships change. Right? 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 It's for his glory, is what Brother Deaver's saying. And he's right. It, it, it takes the emphasis off of self. No longer is life about your ego. No longer is life about self. But your life is about him. Changes everything. It changes your motivations for doing things. Your reasons for doing things. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul echoes this same thought. He says, wake up from your sleep. Climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. That's what happens whenever we're born again of the water and of the spirit. When we follow in the pattern of that death, burial, and resurrection, and we step out into the light of a resurrected life, it's like stepping from one realm to another. And now we're living in the light, and everything is different. Practicing resurrection is living like you are really alive. And not just going through the motions. You're more alive than you've ever been when you're filled with the Holy Ghost and the name of Jesus is spoke over you in baptism. I want to read beginning at verse 35. Uh, I do want to take a little bit of time and address this section in a little bit of detail because I think it's very, very interesting. Verse 35 says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow, uh, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one type, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, I love that phrase, the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So let's talk for a minute, some specifics. When we talk about bodily resurrection, 
Paul launches out in this little section that we just read, and he says there's going to be somebody who asks the practical question of how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? And we're, we're interested in that. We're interested in, in, in the specifics of it, that the mechanics of it. How does it actually happen? What is it going to look like? Well, when we say bodily resurrection, we mean that we're going to be resurrected uh, in our body. There's not going to be little spirits uh, rising up. There's not going to be any of that. It's going to be a, an actual physical body. And um, when we die, we go and to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Our spirit is with him. The immaterial part of us is with him. But in the resurrection, Thessalonians says that the last trump rise first, the bodies are going to come out. Our spirit is going to be reunited with our body, and we are going to be uh, fully human again. And that's what it's meant by a bodily resurrection. And the bodies that we have are going to be human bodies. They're going to be the same as what we have, but different, if that makes sense. Right, they won't decay anymore. They're not going to be corruptible. They're going to be incorruptible. Uh, mortal is going to put on immortality. And so they're going to be human bodies. They're going to be human bodies like we have now. But they're going to be at their very best. They're going to be resurrected. They're going to be glorified. Now, there's somebody out there thinking right now, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to get that perfect body in heaven. So it's going to be all, everything's free and clear now. It's a free-for-all now. I want you to refer back to last week's teaching about the body. We need to take care of our bodies. It doesn't mean we just trash it. Just because, we, just because we're going to get a, uh, a renewal uh, in heaven. But everyone always asks, everyone wants to know, what our glorified, resurrected bodies will be like. And the best answer that we have in Scripture, aside from the passage we just read, is to look at the resurrected body of Jesus Christ because he's the only one that's been there so far. He's the only one we have to look at. And there's just precious little <laughs> detail. But I want to share some of the details with you because I just think it's very interesting, and I think it's part of our hope. I think it's part of what we need to look forward to. We need to be knowledgeable about it. And so this is what the Bible has to say, and I may have missed part, but this is what I find about Jesus' glorified body. After he's resurrected, he's on the earth for about 40 days, and there's many witnesses that see him, up to 500 at one time. And Jesus is going around doing, well, you read about it in the Gospels. He's doing things. He's having conversations. And here's what we see. Uh, he appeared in a room, John chapter 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled. So the disciples are in a locked room because they're scared uh, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be with you. So Jesus just shows up in a locked room. Lock all your doors. Everything's shut down. Brother Ben, you check it again. You check it again. Everything's locked in, Right? And then all of a sudden, someone appears, just materializes. That's what Jesus did, right? Now, how do you do? I can't do that. This body, not capable of it. His glorified, resurrected body, apparently capable of that. Now, we don't see Jesus doing that before the resurrection. Now, he is God manifested. He can do whatever he wants. But there's nowhere in Scripture before this that Jesus does this. This 
appears to be a property of his resurrected, glorified body. And while he's there, he shows up and says, peace, be with you. And then they're all, you know, they're all doing probably the same thing we'd do. And Jesus says, hey, guys, it's me. Look at the scars. So he's in this resurrected, glorified body, and he's, he has scars. So there is a very, and they feel it. Thomas feels the nail scars and the wound on his side. You can't do that if someone's a ghost. This isn't Casper. He has a physical body. There's another time in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has to get from one place to the other and he walks. Now, if I'm capable of teleporting from one place to the other, I don't know if I'm walking anywhere. I guess I would. He does. He he just shows up in this room and John, but then he walks on the road to Emmaus. He walks with these disciples. So we're just, they didn't recognize him. So again, what is it about Jesus that was keeping him unrecognizable in a sense? But then eventually they do recognize him, and guess what he does? He vanishes. They're sitting there eating dinner. Yeah, they're sitting there eating dinner, and finally it clicks, and they're like, oh, and they recognize him, and he vanishes. Gone. Right. Right. That's that's those are good questions that I think we can only speculate and 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 try to give an answer on. Go ahead. They're innocent. I've heard the same thing. I've read the same thing. Then there's those that are born with deformities and, 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 and things that we would consider imperfections physically. Um, and I mean, I want to believe that in, in the resurrection, those things are going to be corrected and that everyone's going to have, even if they never reached maturity, that they're going to have a fully mature human body that's completely capable of everything that they want to do. Uh, and that operates at maximum potential. That's, I, well, you know, I'd like to be 33. I'm not far, but you know. But yeah, I've heard that too, that, that in the resurrection we'll be kind of at the prime of life, the peak of our powers, physical powers. I think there's probably something to that. There's probably something to that. They did. Right. Right. I wish there were more answers about this because I'm very interested just like everybody else. Right. That's what he was just getting at. Yes. I. Right. So, I mean, there's going, to be, there's going to be something about you that's recognizably you, but there's going to be a change. That's what Paul goes on to write in verse 51 or 52 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, we shall all be changed. There's going to be something different. Um, at, 
the end of John, John chapter 21, uh, the disciples are, uh, they're out and John says, I'm going to go fishing. Or Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. So he goes out there fishing and he ain't catching anything. Jesus shows up and says, hey, have you guys caught anything? They don't know it's Jesus. They're like thinking it might be Jesus. Like, and they're like, no, we haven't caught anything. He said, well, I'll cast the net out again. They catch 153 fish. They come back up to shore and Jesus has a campfire going and he's got the bread and he says, give me one of those fish. And he, I guess he makes fish sandwiches. I don't know. But, I mean, he, he eats. He eats. Glorified by. That match, that syncs up with me because from what I read, there's going to be a marriage supper that I'm looking forward to. And I don't think that's metaphor. I think it's going to be literal food. I think it's going to be a good time. Might be fish sandwiches. Imagine there's going to be a lot of good things on the menu. But, there's not a lot of details about what our glorified body is. Here's my favorite verse on the topic, though. My favorite verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I love that verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. I love I love that verse. So there's some things people believe about the afterlife. There's some things people believe about the resurrection that, um, that don't square up with what Scripture tells us. And the closer we are to Scripture, I believe the better message we have, the more attractive it becomes. And so the more we can chip away at things that the world has attached to our belief about what eternity is going to be like and and what the resurrection is or isn't going to be about, I think the more we chip away at that and clear away all that, and the closer we get to Scripture, the better, more attractive message that we have. And if you, and if you want me to hit a rabbit trail just for a minute before we close tonight, I'll, I'll just simply say this. I believe that Scripture bears out, and you can, this be take-home stuff. You can study it out, and if you want to disagree with me, then that's okay, because I think that's all right. Um, but I think that what the Lord does with our bodies, the Lord doesn't throw anything away. He restores. He renews. And that's what he does with our bodies. That's what he does with us. And I think that Scripture bears out that that's what he's going to do with all of creation. Romans chapter 8 they to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Who's that? It's us. For the creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation lives under the conditions of the curse. Not willingly, the word of God says, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There's a work that God is doing that I believe doesn't stop with just us. It starts with us, but I believe he's going to do a work over the whole creation that renews and restores everything about it. Acts chapter 3 verse 21 says, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. There's going to be a time of restoration of all things. Isaiah, the prophet in chapter 65 of Isaiah, says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. It's not just, and this is why I'm trying to, I, I want to expand our spiritual imagination a little bit. I could say it like that. The doctrine that Paul is defending in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is not only the removal of negative things. It is the renewal and the release of everything positive and good that God has stored up. And that is a completely different message. Not just that God is going to wipe away every tear, and he is. Not just that God is going to eliminate disease, and he will, but that there is going to be a renewal that encompasses everything about creation. Everything's going to be made new. It's going to be a restoration of good, but it's going to be good on a level that we have never experienced before. That's why he says in verse 51, we shall all be changed. You ask yourself, what kind of world is that? That's heaven. That's heaven. I think we've sold heaven short. I think we've sold it short by imagining it as harps and clouds. I think we've sold it short by forgetting that of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. I think that scientists still haven't found the end of the universe. And it speaks to the enormous plans and potential that God has for you and me. I think sometimes we get stuck on those parts of Revelation that detail tribulation and trial and even a millennial kingdom, which will be terrific, a thousand-year kingdom. But when we start to consider what the eternal state is going to be, when all the dust is settled and every enemy is defeated and Satan finally hits that lake of fire once and for all, What a world that's going to be. What a world that's going to be. That's our message. That's the message that Paul's defending in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the best message there is. Islam doesn't have one that beats it. Atheism doesn't have one that beats it. Buddhism. No one has a message better than the Christian message. No one has a message better in the New Testament, and it shapes our entire worldview. And the better we are at articulating it, the better we are at communicating it and sharing it with others, we can have great success in reaching this world because the world is looking for, it's a message of hope. It's a message of hope. Paul writes and says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? He reminds us at the end of this chapter by telling us that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are there any questions? Mm-hmm.
get started. He spoke. Let there be light. We don't have an answer for that. He's always been. He's eternal. He's infinite. He wasn't created. He's always been. That's the best answer we have. It's a hard question. It's the best answer we have. But he's always been there. And when he got things started, he said, let there be light. And everything burst into existence all at once as he spoke one day after the other. I believe the church, the redeemed, the sons of God, I believe we have a future that we've only begun to scratch the surface of. I think he's going to restore this, this creation, and I think it's going to be unrecognizable from what it is in the same way that our glorified bodies, there's not going to be much that's recognizable about us. We're not going to age. We're not going to disease. We're not going to, there's not going to be any despair or depression or anything like that. There's, there's so much about our human existence that's just not going to be recognizable from what we know now. I think the world is going to be largely the same. I think we're still going to have a place. We're going to have a physical place. God created us as physical beings. We live in three dimensions. Then nothing about that's going to change. There's going to be a place that we inhabit, a place that we live and operate, a new heaven and a new earth, and probably all points beyond. It's big. It's a big vision, but it's the best message there is. I want to give you a few books to read I've, uh, if you're interested in such things. Um, I've already uh, recommended The Wisdom and the Power of the Cross by J.T. Pugh. It's excellent. deals with a lot of the themes that are there in 1 Corinthians. Um, there's another book, uh, Brother Travis, you brought up C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't, ha I was going to bring my copy out and wave it around. I couldn't find it because I haven't read it in six or seven years, but there's a C.S. Lewis book called Till We Have Faces. And, uh, it is a challenging read, but it is about maturing and growing up. And it's kind of a, a parable. Um, but it's about what we're talking about. God is, God has us on a journey. God has us on a journey where we're, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's another resource that I want to commend to you. Um, Brother Bernard, David Bernard, has a podcast. It's called Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. And there's, I don't know how many episodes they've done. They've been doing it for three or four years now. And the episodes are only about 10 or 15 minutes long. And in each episode, he just addresses one single topic. They range all over the map. It's, a very, it's very interesting. There's one that they did in 2020 called, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? And it's just good. It's good. He brings up a lot of good points, probably points that I haven't thought to bring up. But it's a very good resource, and I would recommend it. It's called Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. Are there any other? We've covered a lot of ground. Okay, let's pray. Stand with me if you would and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for this wonderful group of saints, people that are hungry for more of you, that, Lord, we take your word seriously.